Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got a Gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. Today, we had a legend on the show, Jason Burmis, the Info Warrior. It was a real pleasure, a real honor to speak with him, get the truth behind his path, his journey, his story thus far. And it was awesome to hear all of the amazing things he's done, what he's learned, uh, his ups, his downs, and where he really came from. I felt like uh, I really got to know Jason in this conversation, and I hope you guys feel the same way after listening. Of course, you can go to rockfin.com and find everything Jason Burmis is doing. He is definitely one of the superstars on Rockfin, rockfin.com slash Jason Burmis. You can go to YouTube and find him as well, but come on, guys. You know you're going to get the real stuff at rockfin.com. So without further ado... Here is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast interview with Jason Burmis. Enjoy and come support us on Patreon. We got a lot of really interesting secrets over there. There about Crowley. And at one point he talks about how, you know, he had done his ritualistic magic, right? And he found success with it. But then he warns against it. <laughs> he, he actually does. He warns against it. He says it can kind of turn you crazy. And at, at one point he also talks about how... He thought at one point he was contacted by aliens and having a conversation with them in his head. And then he also says, but you know, I further concluded maybe it was my left brain talking to my right brain. I mean, what's really interesting about Robert Anton Wilson is that he also brings up adrenochrome throughout this too, in a negative sense of something built up in the body, constantly paranoid and upset and have negative energy. You know, the thing that with Crowley, obviously the biggest, I guess, criticism that should, you know, is an open and, and big criticism, in my opinion, other than like the do as thou will, right, to kind of empower yourself that leads to this, you know, in my opinion, very sociopathic, Satanistic type mindset. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark. With me today is a very special guest. He is Jason Burmis, a producer, writer, filmmaker, activist, 
journalist and info warrior. How are you today, Jason? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm excellent. For those who don't know, Jason is behind the film's Loose Change, Shade, Fabled Enemies, Invisible Empire, Nixium Exposed. What's coming next? Well, the Nexium Exposed thing is kind of just this forum that I attended as the Nexium story was breaking. It just so happened that, you know, I'm an upstate New York guy originally, and the Times Union, which is the Albany paper, had been writing about them for well over a decade before it broke. So they actually ended up holding this forum where, you know, somebody who had dated Ranieri was there, one of the lawyers that had sued on behalf, one of the mothers that had gotten her daughter out of there that was the soap star was there. So I just decided to tape that. As far as documentary films, man, they're just so hard, especially in this day and age, uh, to get out there. I want to give a big shout out to Paul Wittenberger because he is currently working on COVID land, which I'm going to be featured in. And that is going to be now, I believe, a six-part series. And he's uh, behind you know, such films as What in the World Are They Spraying and others. He's been around for a long time. This is a huge step up in production value that I've seen. And I'm just very stoked uh, to watch the finished product. In fact, he sent me several clips. And the last one he sent me, I still haven't even watched. I should actually DM him after I do this interview. And get on that and watch it because I think that's going to be a really, really important documentary. But I would say this, people should check out my previous films because they stand up to scrutiny today and especially shade the motion picture. You know, for those not familiar with my work, before it was in vogue to take on Bill Gates, there's about a 20 minute section featuring Bill Gates in shade the motion picture. And it goes into everything for his, um, you know, love of vaccinations to his love of geoengineering, to his investments in not only we now know he's the largest farmland owner in this country, but Monsanto and other companies that obviously will be using that farmland. So that film in particular, if you want to get a good vibe of what my you know political leanings are, that's a film I wrote and directed with Shepard M. Bellis of IntelliHub. And uh, we kind of make it very clear in the very beginning. There's this little you know disclaimer that says, look, I can't speak for everybody here on everybody's subjects. I don't agree with everybody here on everything. But, you know, this um, piece is one in which their words, because I don't speak in it at all unless I'm being interviewed. In other words, it's a cinema verite. This is how we feel the world is going. You know, we are taking little bits from Jordan Maxwell. And even Anthony Hilder makes an appearance there before he passed. And I'm taking things from Chris Gio and even Shepard. You know, we don't see eye to eye on everything. But we saw eye to eye on that film. And I think that's important, right? Because now we live in this society where even that two-party illusion, that left-right conservative versus liberal speech, which was already completely and totally controlled, isn't allowed, right? If people are getting canceled left-right on that, and then no pun intended, but they are, you know, they're getting canceled on both ends. Doesn't matter who you are, if you bring up the wrong thing or if you've done the wrong thing in the past, you can now be canceled. And I've always wanted to go beyond that. I'm an adult. You know, I've been an adult for a very long time, and I never liked being treated like a child when I was a child. So, you know, to have these people within what I call the predator class, and I've identified them as that for well over a decade, they look at us as less than children. They treat us like children, right? But they look at us as less than pets. And what I need people to understand is that is not an overstatement. 
Okay, there is a certain class of people that believe that they should not only rule over society, but be in charge of the very evolution of human human beings into this transhumanist agenda. And we're starting to see that blossom right now. Yes, yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I myself, I remember you making that point on this episode of Tim Foyle Hat I just listened to for a refresher, but I'm right there with you, man. All this BS about the simulation, we're in the simulation. It's just, it's totally warping the the body of, you know, people out there to think that, yeah, this is cool. Let's be in some kind of simulated world where we plug into the matrix. And quite honestly, you know, not to offend any of my close friends, but they're already really there. They play video games all the time. They're doing it. They're in the, the beta version of the matrix already. But, you know, before we go into that, I really want to take things back a little bit because I got to say, Jason, loose change. I watched it in middle school. Okay. So you really from the beginning, before I even knew who you were, you had an impact on me. So the fact is you've done that already. You know, I don't think I would be where I'm at right now if I didn't have that red pill at such a young age. And it made me question so much. And I've always had that same feeling of like, yeah, there's this group of people who think that I'm not smart enough to govern myself. And that's bullshit. It's straight bullshit. And you feel it. And that comes from the name of my show. Like my family thinks I'm crazy because they've just kind of given up. They go along with society. And when anybody kind of questions it, they're like, what are you doing? That's crazy. You know, they, they've, you're, you become a pariah. So when did this begin for you, Jason? Were you, you know, like a wild uh, teenager getting into trouble? Were you kind of a, a book nerd like me studying stuff? Like what, what was, what was your past? How did you get into this? I guess you get the combo pack, right? So, you know, definitely nerdy in my own regards, for sure. I did like to read. I was like a National Honor Society kid. I did well in school, but I also was, you know, I played sports. You know, I was good at sports. Did that. Was We moved to a small town. You know, also, I think one of the things that made me skeptical, there are two, two big things in my life. Growing up poor, and then, you know, my father was in and out of jail as a kid and, and having that reality. And I grew up a little bit closer to the city when I was a kid. So we would go into Brooklyn quite a bit in the Bronx and kind of get in that perspective of life and, you know, like stay close to me. You can't trust this. You can't trust that. Seeing the system, having to go visit your father in prison. And then on the flip side of that, you know, my, my parents were split up and I'd go with my dad on my weekends with my brother and sister, but he would get something called the Time Life Series. It was called Unsolved Mysteries. And it used to have this uh, commercial. It was read the book, read the book. So I, I was into reading, you know, I, I thought that was kind of cool. But at the time, and I'm kind of on a binge of this lately, by the way, it was like, you know, I'm a kid. So I was big into WWF wrestling. So like wrestling magazines were like basically what I was reading at the time. I still hadn't gotten into comic books. I was a little too young. It's around me being like nine or 10, you know. So these unsolved mystery books, right? You see them on TV. They had stuff about UFOs, which I thought was intriguing. I thought the Loch Ness Monster stuff was intriguing. I thought the Bigfoot stuff was intriguing, right? Because those ones, especially the Bigfoot ones, had kind of like these now famous, quote unquote, cryptozoologist photographs from the 1900s and all these things. And this is well before Photoshop, right? <laughs> so you don't even think that, you know, they could be doctored in any way, et cetera, and kind of captivate your imagination. Now, the paranormal stuff, 
I wasn't as into, right? They had all that stuff too, but it was something I was reading, but I was open-minded about it. And, you know, really, as I kind of went through high school, you know, although I was among the popular crowd, I was very much the contrarian. I was also moving into a, a town when my dad went to jail. I move into this small town. I don't have any friends. I don't know what to do. What do you do? It's kind of a funny story the way that, you know, the world works, but I ran for class president and I bought my way to the top. <laughs> I literally paid kids like a buck or two to vote for me and I won. So it was a way to kind of like jump into this scenario through like a kind of political thing, thinking about it. And I was always that guy. But at the same time, I loved this country so much that I was almost kind of blinded by it. And I specifically remember, <clears throat> for instance, in 99, kind of going to Woodstock. I mean, I was I turned 20 while I was there to give people an age range. I was born in 79. And boy, I mean, the Russian propaganda had hit me so much from being a kid that I, I was just like, I love this country. This ain't Russia, freedom, blah, blah. And I just spout that shit off like you wouldn't believe, like, I, like it was a real thing. But I had also known that, you know, our government probably had something to do with Kennedy's death at that time, right? I was also in AP history and things like that. But I kind of thought to myself, because again, I had this idealized version of what our government was, motherfucker probably deserved it. <laughs> Like, he was probably really going to fuck us over. And someone was like, no, we can't have that. So, you know, it really didn't happen for me, the awakening, until the world changed, man. 9-11 changed it all. And, you know, even that morning, I had questions. But, you know, I fell into the same propaganda everybody else did for the next six months. It wasn't until about six months later that I really started looking into it. And that's when I kind of revisited some of the initial questions I had, because I remember I got woken up. I worked late nights at a pizzeria at the time. I got woken up by my roommate and all these guys were like Long Islanders, right? So you got to drive through the city to, to be there. You know, I'd been in the World Trade Center as a kid a couple of times. I'd walked back by it many times. You couldn't miss it when you were in the city. So it definitely had, you know, that kind of emotional grasp on you. But I walk out my back. Well, first of all, I come downstairs. I, I start watching it after the dude comes in and says the towers are gone. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking? What do you mean they're gone? <laughs> like, you know, this is like 1130 in the morning. You know, like I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about? I probably hadn't even been asleep for four or five hours. So I go downstairs and I start watching them just come down, right? Come down. And there weren't as many videos of the plane going in, right? And I'm just looking at it and I'm like, like there had to be bombs in the building, right? Like there's no way that those things couldn't have just come down like that. I go, it looks like they're blown up. Like what, what's going on here? So I initially had that question, but again, such a chaotic day. And then the next thing I remember about that day is I finally get up and I walk out my back door and my neighbor, Jeremy, I specifically remember it, he's flipping out, you know, his whole family's down there. He's like, fuck bin Laden, this motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's like not even noon yet. <laughs> what do you, I go, Bin Laden? He goes, he goes, well, yeah, he's the one that did this. I mean, we're talking hours after it. My neighbor is spouting this version. And I look at him and I go, well, what, why do you think that? And he goes, well, you know, everybody's saying he's got to be that terrorist motherfucker and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, and, and this is my ignorance at the time. I go, well, Timothy McVeigh was a white guy. You know, I don't know why it's got to be Muslim terrorists or something like that. You know, I, I just pretty early. <laughs> so 
you know, I kind of get on this journey, man. Like it wasn't until much later. And I remember actually being disgusted with the first uh, question that I had seen about it. I was watching Fox News in the morning, but I was watching. I'll tell you what. Here's the thing. Post 9-11, I became an absolute news junkie. Forget about it. People don't understand unless you live through it, but there was still only about, there's still under a hundred channels you could choose from. Bandwidth wasn't that great. YouTube does not exist. Okay. So you're not downloading video content from the web millennials that don't know this. I just want to make everybody very clear. That's not something you did. Something that you would do on the web, for instance, like I would do uh, being a video game nerd, I had a hacked Dreamcast or something like that. You get like an 800 megabyte file, but dude, that would take like six hours, <laughs> maybe more, maybe like 10 hours, depending on it. So there was no real video content. You were talking about like 30 seconds or e-bombs world or very compressed. So that wasn't something I was doing. What I was doing was watching the TV and every major network, at least for a week, week and a half, did not have regular programming. It was news, period. It was news. So right there, you know, you kind of had the birth of the 24-hour news network everywhere. You had it originally with CNN and their first aired war in the 90s, which I witnessed, the Gulf War, and I specifically remember that too. But then you also had the rise of Fox and MSNBC late 90s during the Clinton scandal, right? You were supposed to get two flavors of that. And that's kind of where I became aware of those things. But then you know, you'd already now had Bloomberg and CNBC in place and these other things. But now it was 24 hours on NBC, CBS, Fox News, WPIX, everything, everything, everything. You couldn't get away from it. And when that stopped, I transitioned over and, you know, that's all I watched, right? <laughs> that's all I watched. So I, I was constantly watching this stuff. And every once in a while, a pretty crazy story would come up and I kind of think, well, that's a little weird, right? And it's not until later when I re revisit it, right? But I'm watching Fox, Fox and Friends, and they're talking about Thierry Masson and his book, The Pentagate. Now, another, you know, thing just like America and hate the Russians that you kind of got fed on in my generation. Another like meme, if you will, was that like the French were weak and conspiracy theorists, right? They're weak, smelly and conspiracy theorists, right? I, I, I heard that all the time when I was growing up. I mean, I was in second grade when 9-11 happened, but, you know, my grandparents are French. So anytime I told anyone I was French, I would hear all this shit. And I'm like, I don't it doesn't even, it didn't even make sense to me. But you're, you're, you're putting a lot of dots together. And especially, you know, to take it to more serious point, the idea that I wasn't aware of or the the no, um, the fact that the 24 hour news cycle was a byproduct of this time period because oh, you, well, cause again, it was the first time, for instance, Letterman wasn't on, right? Not, nothing was on. The only thing you had was national and local news. That's it. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't until, for instance, they, they did one of those, it was the red cross. They got caught red cross stole all this money, but it was this red cross special with Tom Cruise and all these celebrities. You'd see it again and again with things like Katrina after the fact, you just saw like the concert for COVID and backs the world and all that bullshit. But this was really like a big time Genesis of that. And again, we were supposed to trust our leaders. So you were in this big 24 hour news cycle. It was like a heightened state of fear. And I, I can say, you know, after nine 11, I kind of fell into that same kind of patriotic propagandist kind of thing. And it wasn't until I really examined the other people who expressed that same sentiment where I realized like, wait, these people aren't 
thinking very critically about these things that they're expressing passionately. And that made me look deeper. And I had a, a buddy of mine who was actually the second guest I ever had on this show who showed me in our computer class in middle school, Loose Change. And, you know, that brought on all these questions. And I'd always been really fascinated in the military to the point of like, now I'm like, wow, like all this killing power, it's making sense. It's not to protect us. It doesn't make sense. It's pro protecting us. Look at the, the track record of history. But I definitely noticed that in my uh, family and my peers that there's this like heightened state of fear. And this has all been leading up to what we're seeing now, where they're really programming people culturally and ideologically, you know, in a really insidious way. And they were then, right? They were then. Like, that's the point. Like, so immediately out of hand, I didn't even think that this book that they were talking about, Le Penigate, that was arguing that a plane had not hit the Pentagon had any validity whatsoever. And let's let's just, you know, talk about that for a second, because I constantly still, you know, the memes about me and 9-11 are two ones that are totally false, but they say that I still think no plane hit the Pentagon. And I'll just say, I don't know what hit the Pentagon, but there's no way it should have hit the Pentagon. And we should have tons of video records of what hit the Pentagon from the inside and out, period, public. So let me just say that, get that out of the way. If you want to know my actual opinion on what the possibilities are, I would encourage you to watch Loose Change Final Cut, okay? Final Cut, where we did our own investigation and we give a large section to it, okay? Now, there's that. And then the other meme that they like to say is that I, I covered up for Israel. <laughs> when in Fabled Enemies, my follow-up to Loose Change, which I feel is just as important, if not more important, which actually has your current president of the United States on tape twice, on tape twice, covering up the Pakistani ISI money involvement in 9-11, okay, I, among others, I mean, I think Fabled Enemies stands up so well. And when I show that, people are, whoa. But I have a 20-minute section on Israeli and Mossad involvement because this is the film that doesn't deal with the physical anomalies. This is the film that shows the international intelligence operation that was 9-11 and the role players in both funding and action on the ground. You know, I couldn't make it more clear. You know, but to go back to it, you know, so I, I totally disregard that and I stop thinking about it. And it's not until, you know, I tell the story a lot because it's a true story. I go back to my high school from college, which is like an hour away from where my buddies are starting to become teachers for a men's night basketball game. And we're playing ball. And I go back into my old locker room, which is everything's a little bit more revamped. But in the urinal in the locker room, and this is a small school, this is 12 to 18. Right. This is like, you know, I think you start there at like seventh grade, seventh grade to, to you know, it's a middle end high school. Very small. I graduated with 54 kids and I was pissing on bin Laden's face. <laughs> There's a yell. Anybody can um, check it out. Just type in bin Laden urinal cake operation enduring freedom. You'll find the picture on the Internet. It's there. And just something clicked in my goddamn brain. You know, I had seen I had seen somebody also prior talking about the response of the military because they were going over uh, to Iraq to be human what was it human uh, bodies to stop the uh, basically to try to block the U.S. from bombing them before they did. And he was talking about how there was no military response. So I'd already had the seed planted that they were demonizing this one guy that maybe the military's reaction wasn't there. I had my initial, you know, thoughts. Whoa. And now you know, we're on the run up to the Iraq war, 
You know, it's not just Afghanistan that we supposedly went in and just decimated and we were going to be out of almost immediately, right? That's what they promised us. We're going to get the terrorists. We're going to get out. We're going to get the terrorists. We're going to get out. <laughs> Here we are 20, 20 years later, right? So, which is insane. So then, then it's on, man. Like I'm, I'm, I'm realizing just something clicks, dude. This is the biggest piece of propaganda I've ever seen in my life. This is in a school. I go, when I was a kid and remember, I kind of, I, I've now kind of moved away from that red scare, right? Cause now the terror scare was there and I'm kind of questioning that. And I'm thinking, dude, I was never pissing on like Khrushchev or Gorbachev's face as a kid. You know, I was doing duck and cover drills and scared of nuclear war. And they were showing me the day after tomorrow and things like that. But I was never pissing on another human being's face every day when I had to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, that's just what the fuck is going on? I better make sure this guy did it because I know how society works. So I go home and all I want to do is find a timeline of 9-11. And that's exactly what I do. I find 9-11timeline.net. Anybody can check it out. It's still up there. It's a way old site. It's about 40 pages long if you printed it out. And back in the day, you would sometimes print those things out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so there's that. And then it's also located to standdown.net. And these are the two sites that just brought me down the rabbit hole, man. And I want to prove it wrong. And the next thing I know, I'm pulling up Alex Jones's The Road to Tyranny in this real media file that's off like 30 seconds on the audio <laughs> and completely compressed. And I'm hearing this like young, gruff voice, hillbilly for the first time. I'm gonna prove this motherfucker wrong. And I start looking up the stuff that's in there in his movie. And boy, oh boy, I did not like it. I did not like it. So from there, I kind of transitioned from, all right, so now it was the time period. It wasn't the time period that you could get like YouTube movies, but I was a huge before torrents existed peer to peer guy. So that was Morpheus. That was Kazaa. Some people used to use LimeWire or BearShare. And I just became, not only was I an archiver, archiver of the DivX movies that were out there at the time that was starting to come up, but I also became like a big archiver of just news and documentaries. And I've had these CDRs that used to, because you couldn't get DVDs back then. Again, guys, this is way back then, you know, before 2003, four, you really couldn't do that. It was 700 megabyte CDRs. And I still have like, you know, I've transferred most of them over to hard drives, but I burned 700 megabyte discs of old documentaries, archive footage. I started handing out just folders of news footage that didn't make sense about 9-11 and try to explain it to people. And that's kind of how I got going, bro. And I, I was going, when I went to college, it's funny, I'm a beauty school dropout. I thought I was going to go there for computer art. And that is, I, you know, that is pretty much what I did. You know, I, it was, I thought I would be a 3D animator or work for the Simpsons or something like that as a kid. That was always kind of the dream. You know, I got most artistic in high school, but I ended up learning Photoshop, base editing skills, and things like that. And that kind of obviously drove me from like graphic design and corporate nonsense. And, you know, even before I got this gig in between waking up and becoming a documentary filmmaker, I got my first gig as a uh, graphic designer. I had an office and a desk and there was a secretary in the other room that worked for everybody. And, you know, it was the best thing ever. You know, I was like, yay, you know, so happy about that. And it just very quickly, things changed. And, you know, I took those skills, the graphic design skills, and I used them with the guys that I met with Loose Change, making flyers, banners, doing base editing, research, et cetera, et cetera. 
And here I am today now, literally 16, 17 years later after that experience, and really almost 20 years later from waking up because I woke up about six, seven months after. So, you know, it's been a wild ride, obviously. And uh, shit's really hit the fan, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And here we are today. I mean, the psyops have increased in number and complexity. I mean, right now, I think a lot of the people in this community and the podcasting community are kind of reeling from the past four years and the spike that was driven into the community. How, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously you probably weren't swayed to fall for the Q stuff at all because you knew all these players from the beginning, right? So let's get into that a little bit. If yeah, you, you know, that was a tough one because, uh, you know, all right, so here's the deal. Like for, because I had no idea about any of this stuff, right? I, so I took a big break. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, I end up going from doing loose change with those guys to being the first guy that Alex Jones ever hires and gives his, their own show to, you know? And it that happens in a transition of Alex producing Fabled Enemies, my follow-up 9-11 film. Basically, I went out there for a few months. I had a script. I had all this footage we hadn't used in Loose Change Final Cut. I thought there was another story to tell. Um, there was another story to tell. I think it's a very important story um, because it puts the names to the politicians. It puts the names and faces to the government organizations, both in the United States and outside of it. It actually puts names and faces to the gradual expansion of the shadow government that some people didn't even think existed, right, <laughs> at the time. And now many people still have, you know, still can't come to grips with not only how it exists, but how extensive it really is, Okay. So really important film. This is before Alex has his studios that you see him in now. Like this little, we're in this little, little studio. Like it's, there's a, there's a Vato like Mexican barber shop where these dudes just hang out and drink all day. In between that is a Korean brother owned grocery store. And, you know, I, I don't like to get into race, but it was just such a, like a character place. Like these two Korean brothers would be arguing all the time when you're going in and getting your sodas. And then you would see like the sketchiest characters ever on this other thing. Another thing that was kind of like circus abound about it was that across the street, there was a coffee shop, right? And we were outside of Austin's like main, main area, but still, you, you know, you were still kind of there. And there was this guy, I, a guy, I don't know what, I don't know how he identified. I don't want to offend anybody, but he was like, at the time, I think it was Leslie, the transvestite. So there was this famous like local Austin, you know, keep it weird transvestite guy that would go down on sixth street all the time. Right. And, you know, he had full on breasts, but he looked like, like a gold miner, like, like long blonde hair and a beard. And he would be out there in sixth street, like in like a pink tutu and wings sometimes, like whatever the fuck he wanted to do. Right. Like he didn't care. And he used to be all by all the time. And like, he was locally famous enough to the point where he did like a local visa commercial, <laughs> like was on TV there, you know? So you had this circus encompassed around what InfoWars was when it was very small, right? The, the building itself looked like this big barn. And like I said, it was broken up into three parts and Alex had the biggest part. And you can still kind of find Alex Jones when he's just kind of in a booth talking and it's not that. And I, there's a couple of videos of me doing the same thing because that's how we started, man. You know, and I give, look, 
anytime I haven't agreed with Jones, and there's been many times you talk about Q, the man said he talked, I talked to Q, okay? <laughs> you know, I, I made a video about criticizing about that right away, but there's no doubt the dude was a pioneer, and there's no doubt the dude absolutely mentored me. You know what I mean? Alex Jones is Alex Jones in and out of the studio. I can't say that I really know him personally the last decade plus, but, you know, obviously I interviewed him this past year. I've had interactions. I still keep in touch with Rob Dew and I try to push good information, you know, and sometimes that good information makes it on there. We have our disagreements, but at the same time, is he better than mainstream media? Yes. Is it upsetting and sad that it all got co-opted into this like Trumpian Roger Stone nonsense? Yes. <laughs> yes. That is a huge criticism of mine. And that's why I didn't go along with it. I'm my own person, right? Uh, that, that's it. Like when I, when I came back the second time, Jones had agreed to do Invisible Empire, which again, without Jones, I don't have this body of work. He produced those two films, you know, and I think Invisible Empire also, it's called a new world order defined because we're talking about the historical references of what a new world order is, what collectivism is, how it's not some right wing thing. And we show you out of their own mouths, you know, so I was so proud to do that. And I was proud that InfoWars was coming up. You know, this is like 2009, 2010. And he did get his own studios and I had my own show and you saw the expansion and it was big. You know what I mean? That he got, uh, I think it was like AMD's old studios, you know, it, it was great. You know, he, I was so hyped up and encouraged to go and do that. But at the same time, I was in Texas. It was work all the time. You know, you know, these are, this is my core crew. Now people like Aaron Dykes, Rob Jacobson, you know, can't keep Dew out of there because Dew came to work. I was working there before Dew, you know, and Dew's well outlasted me to be, you know, Jones's right-hand man. But, you know, we had some really good times together. But, you know, like Dew, you know, had a family, you know, Dykes and Jacobson just as me worked in the office and were completely absorbed in the work. And it, listen, I had a lot of fun in Austin. I, I'd say like it was like always a grind to like there's nice girls out there, blah, 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 blah. But that was my whole life. I was in Texas. My friends and my family were all back in New York. And I had kept my place in New York because I had intended to try to keep making movies. You know what I mean? And basically, you know, it came down to Jones wanted me to kind of like, you know, ghostwrite and do his movies and, and help him like the way that Aaron did a lot of the research on those other movies, you know, and they're quite frankly, I wasn't interested in doing films that weren't my own. Right. I, I think that's what gives me a little bit more flavor and that's not to knock Alex's films. I think they're great. I think, you know, they're good, you know, really good. But at the same time, I think I have a different flavor and a different voice, right? So I leave and, you know, I still stick around in the sense that I'm doing radio here and there. I'm on Dangerous Conversation with Scott Ledger. And then Shepard M. Bellis approaches me. And, you know, I'd, I'd done a little bit with Gary Franchi too, who I still keep in touch with over at Next News Network now, but it was Lone Lantern Society then. And then it was the Intel hub before it was IntelliHub. And Shepard said, look, let's do, a, let's do a film on geoengineering, bioengineering. I'm like, well, that sounds like something I want to do. And so, you know, that's how Shade came about. And, you know, after that, it was just so hard to make money because it was kind of that transition of DVDs are dead, right? You can't just sell DVDs in bulk. And digital still wasn't big enough where you could sell a lot of it, right? 
So, you know, it was weird. You remember like the biggest online sensation was that Coney propaganda video. Things were changing. And, you know, I, I made that movie as short as possible. I think it clocks in just under 90 minutes and that's on purpose. I didn't want to, I wanted to move quick, you know, cause I'd seen like, this was like 45 minutes. It was very quick, poppy. It, it caught people. Same with, you know, the original loose change, even before the final cut, that's about an 80 minute film, you know? And then even when we recut it a little bit, it was under 90 minutes. Important, you know, Dylan, shout out to Dylan Avery. He just put out a new documentary on the Building 7 report from Fairbanks, Alaska. It's called Seven. I think it clocks in just under 50 minutes. Extremely effective still, you know? And maybe that's because of our intention spans. You know, I don't want to go off on the loop, but basically, look, man, I took a big break, right? I took a big break. There wasn't a lot of money in it. I started, I did a lot of things. I went back to flipping pizza. I started doing, I was the head videographer for the biggest youth baseball camp in the world out in Cooperstown, New York. It's called Dreams Park. I had a lot of fun at that job, but they didn't want to pay me. And it was funny because I had a broadcast background, right? And as much as I'm talking about stuff like this, they had me out there doing the opening ceremonies in front of a couple thousand grandparents and parents. And then like at the other things, I was like, and out of Mississippi. <laughs> Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and and I had fun with that stuff, but there wasn't a lot of money in it. So I'm still like kind of ratting around. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I end up taking a soulless job at an MSP company, managed service provider. It was awful. I was doing like a- animations and shooting, and I'm doing bl- like generic blogs. You basically take all these other tech companies and you sell them prepackaged nonsense like for their newsletters that they just kind of put their names on. They don't do any work for. It was soulless. It was soul crushing. You know what I mean? But again, I had been promised I could make some money, blah, blah, blah. So then I go back to one of my other loves, bars. (laughs) So I can't make anybody at this place. I take a part-time job as a bouncer at this bar. And it turns out it's their second bar. I really like the bar. That's why I even took the bouncer job. And I figured I could get in there as a bartender, make some real money. And I wasn't making terrible money as a, as a uh, bouncer. I was actually getting tipped out pretty good, you know? And they liked me because at, at the time I was in my mid thirties and we were a popular college town and I would keep the underage kids out. And I would say, that's a smart thing because the overage kids aren't going to steal from us. They're not going to break shit and they're going to actually spend money and it's going to be more exclusive. You watch, it's going to work out. And so they were opening up like a third bar right? So within a year's time, they saw I was pretty smart and they had me managing the place, right? So the other guy left and I'm, I'm running a bar now within like 18 months of me doing this. And I do it for quite some time. You know, I, I'm, I'm there for about three, four years. And at the end of it, you know, I'm getting kind of worn out. It's one of those gigs and, but they're opening a fourth one, you know, so it's still kind of successful. So I'm, I'm talking to them. I don't know what I'm going to do. Bilderberg 2017 rolls around at the bar. I'm on a laptop. I start scrolling through. Oh my goodness. It's going to be at Chantilly, Virginia. It's on a Thursday. Now, and I specifically remember it's on a Thursday and I see it's going to be in Chantilly. And I'm like, dude, you haven't been there since 2012. For those that don't know, it's the opener of shade, the motion picture. Go watch it today. (laughs) So, you know, 2012, if you've seen my movie shade, we had about a thousand people out there. There was some fire. There was some fire. And I'm like, yeah, motherfucker. You know, we can take these motherfuckers down. We can expose this predator class. So 
just everything fired up my blood right there. And I called up Luke Radowski <laughs> and I said, you know, for those that don't know, Luke, another great, you know, pioneer in this whole thing. We are change. I go, dude, are, are you going to this? You know, I just saw that this is in uh, Chantilly. And uh, he goes, yeah, I'm in the car right now with Tim Poole and Jeff Berwick. <laughs> and Dan Dix is heading down too. I'm like, oh, <laughs> he's like, you should come. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm supposed to work. And I'm like, you know what? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely see you there. So I work my Friday night because I couldn't really find someone to cover it. And I probably couldn't have justified it to the owners that I was just going to take off on them. But I'm like, yo, I run this motherfucker. So by work my Friday night, I mean, I worked till about 1130 and I already had my car packed and I drove there from my bar job at like 1130 at night. It's about a five hour drive to DC from where I lived. And I get there and I slept in a parking lot that I, that's like kind of around the corner from where the, where this hotel is in Chantilly, Virginia, because, and I knew the, the parking lot because I did the same thing the time before when I first came in, you know, I was meeting Shepard Ambellis there, but I remember there was this specific parking lot that I could get away with taking a nap in if I needed to, if I was beat and I had a Chipotle. So <laughs> I get there and I'm up like six, seven in the morning. Anyway, I take like a two hour nap and I go to set up my film, my camera's thinking there's going to be a bunch of people out there. Nah, it's pathetic. And like the people that did show up were chanting bullshit, like CNN is ISIS and Jack Posobiec was there. And I didn't know who he was, but he tried shouting me down with a megaphone. You can go watch all this. It's, it's online. And I ended up debating him afterwards. You know, it was all this, it was this Trump love fest. And at the time there were five people in the Trump administration that were inside and he just cut that $481 billion deal with Saudi Arabia for the arms dealing, right? I think McMaster's was in there. Liddell was in there. Peter Thiel, who at the time was his technology advisor, is on the board at Bilderberg. And I'm like, dude, and you know, this again, this is me being critical of Jones. I go, if this were the Obama years and there were five people from his administration there, this would be the, this would be the Bilderberg administration, folks. <laughs> like, no doubt about it. So I was upset, quite frankly. And I was, I was kind of, pissed off at how everything was going. Like I remember he was shouting down somebody who worked with Dan Dix for some time for Press for Truth, Lee Stewie. She does really good work as well. And she was right. So like, you know, he started talking about like Clinton stuff to me. And I'm like, dude, you don't even know who I am. Like <laughs> I'd stop now. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was one of those experiences that kind of opened my eyes. I, I remember I met Lauren Southern while I was there as well. She was there. It was a very different feel. And I'm like, whoa. I need to get back into this. And Luke kind of offered me a job right out of the gates. Like, you know, we hadn't talked to each other in a while. I was skeptical because I, you know, I like Luke and it's very hard when you actually are friends to get into business with your friend. And especially in a business that's not necessarily a business to you. It's a passion because it's real. It's, oh, this has always been real to me. I am no grifter. I can promise you that. And anybody who knows me and anybody who knows my work over the last 20 years, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. A grifter, I am not. Okay. So I started doing part time work for a loose change. And it gets to New Year's 2018. You know, that was in the summer. So about five, six months, I do part time. And I'm like, that's it. 
I'm going to leave this bar job. I, I, I turned my phone off on midnight on New Year's. And, you know, we're open till five in the morning on <laughs> New Year's. I didn't want to talk to, and I had an email set up and I just emailed the guys and I said, look, I'll be out in two months. You know, I'm going to give you two months notice and I'm doing this full time. I can't do this anymore. You know, after having some talks with them, because I told them if I couldn't be an owner, it probably wasn't for me anyway. You know, and I was old enough where, listen, I know my worth too. There's no reason I should be working poor. Like if I were doing, you know, jerk me off sideways video game or movie reviews, I'm sure I could make money. Right. And although I have fun doing that stuff too. But that's not what's fucking important, right? So that brings me to Q, right? Big long fucking diatribe of how oh, we get there. Yeah, and I, I just want to clarify because sure. the whole intention of my show is to show people like it's one thing to be like, go watch this film. But to hear you tell your story, I think adds another level to it because, you know, not knowing all this about you, someone might dismiss the content and be like, well, who the hell, you know, and hearing your story from your own, you know, here with you, it's really, yeah, I'm with you, man. And I understand what it's like to have those things leveled at you. You know, I did a controversial episode on Aleister Crowley, just trying to show, you know, all of the pieces of the puzzle, you know, and, and even Sam got really mad, you know, thinking I was trying to, you know, go back on, but either way, my point is when you try to get to the truth, a lot of people want to tell you, you know, you're wrong because people don't like conclusions and they mistake the, the, the real intention, which is the questions, the questions that matter, you know, and asking smarter questions every time. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, it's interesting you may bring up Crowley. Just kind of take a <laughs> side note. I have been listening to a guy named Robert Anton Wilson. Are you uh, familiar with of Robert? Of course. Anton? Robert Anton Wilson's uh, got some places on my bookshelf back there. Yeah, I love Robert Anton Wilson. And, you know, he speaks of Crowley rather highly. Yeah. And and not only does he speak of Crowley rather highly, but, you know, I watched there's a six hour the world, according to uh, Robert Anton Wilson on YouTube. It's just six hours, basically, I'm talking and being interviewed. And there's a portion there about Crowley. And at one point he talks about how, you know, he had done his ritualistic magic. Right. And he found success with it. But then he warns against it. <laughs> he, he actually does. He warns against it. He says it can kind of turn you crazy. And at, at one point, he also talks about how he thought at one point he was contacted by aliens and having a conversation with them in his head. And then he also says, but, you know, I further concluded maybe it was my left brain talking to my right brain. I mean, what's really interesting about Robert Anton Wilson is that he also brings up adrenochrome throughout this too in a negative sense of something built up in the body if you're constantly paranoid and upset and have negative energy you know the thing that with Crowley obviously the biggest I guess criticism that you should you know is an open and, and big criticism in my opinion other than like the do as thou wilt right to kind of empower yourself that leads to this you know in my opinion very sociopathic satanistic type right. mindset is that when he was encanting these beings and writing as these beings, he talks about the most powerful sex ritual magic being taking the life of a virgin boy and at climax, cutting their, their neck and then drinking their blood. <laughs> and, you know, again, uh, that is through a demonic being or whatever, you know, not supposedly through Crowley itself, but he put it to paper. So, you know, it, 
especially if you kind of believe that Crowleyan sense of be your own God, you know what I mean? Like if there isn't an afterlife, then that somehow manifested not through something else or someone else, but from his own mind, right? We could talk about collective consciousness and all that other stuff, but when you really get down to it, I think that's a valid criticism. But a lot of this stuff is simply, you know, the beginnings of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, right? Kind of programming yourself to be a better person, have a better vision of yourself as well. And I think that's where people get confused because they want to look at it as kind of just like this black, white, very simple cartoon idea of I can do this and see the eye and see a celebrity go like this and they believe a certain thing and act a certain way when it's much more complex than that. But, you know, go ahead. And no, and dude, way to put it, because that's exactly it for me. And that's kind of the picture I tried to play out is like Crowley. Yeah, he went into these dark realms and he did dark shit and he was not a good person. And he recorded that. I mean, a lot of people don't know. He's got this book called Snowdrops, which I do not recommend people read, but it's basically pornography and it's not consensual in most cases. And it's also not between parties that are even close to the same age. So yeah, we don't need to get into the gruesome details, but he was definitely writing disturbing shit. But you're absolutely right on the fact that he was using something that isn't inherently bad in it of itself. And I think that what it really shows is that these elite people have had access to this type of power for a long time. And really what he did was expose it. And I think that's why he got pushed into this dark, dark, dark realm even further because they were kind of like, Hey, why are you, you know, putting all this stuff out there for people to understand and look at the way his life ended. I mean, he was a drug addict and miserable and now he's buried in some cow farm cow shitting on his grave. So it's not like he's revered and put up in some like Royal bloodline palace, but he did kind of take that, what they had there hidden and expose some of it. I mean, would you agree with that? I would say yes, in a sense, but I'd say some of them really do have respect for him. You know, obviously people question what happened to his son right? His child. And that is a good question. I remember actually having a specific conversation about Crowley with Jones, right? And this occult stuff, right? And, you know, he's, you know, we don't believe it works in the sense that like magic is real, right? And he goes, he's like, look, man, he's like, I don't believe in any of that stuff, but they respect that guy because he did it and he sacrificed his kid. And like, I'm like, damn, he's like, he, he, I'm like, you think that that's it? He's like, yeah, they respect him for that. Cause that's the ultimate power sacrifice. You know, he kind of sacrificed that on the altar of his own ethos and power. And, and again, that was kind of his driving force. I, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, if people really get down to what the secret or the law of attraction is, it only works if you put those thoughts into motion, right? Those thoughts are only the beginning of bringing something into the universe, and I, prior to me even knowing the secret, okay, and, and this is a real story, and I have told this many, many times, I saw the original 60-minute cut of Loose Change. Remember I was telling you how I was one of those people that was downloading everything, documentaries or otherwise? So I'd seen, um, what is it, 9-11 Ripple Effect by Von Kleist at this point, everything that was out there, you know? I'm not sure if Jones's martial law was out there before Loose Change, but it might have been, 9-11 Police State movie. So I'd seen everything and more, and I had all this other footage. And when I saw Loose Change, 
I said, wow, this is the one that can break the back. This is the, I want to work with these guys. They had a website. There was really no real contact info. I had no idea who they were. Dylan Avery, Corey Rowe, they're in DC. So immediately I start thinking, these are two guys probably in their 30s, maybe, maybe more. I don't know. You know what I mean? From DC that have some investigation background or documentary background, whatever. Uh, it, again, this is 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. I think 2004, 2005, limited internet. And I literally prayed to God and I'm not a religious person, but whatever God is, I am kind of at least agnostic. The powers of the force, I go, if you let me be a part of this, I swear to God, I will help change the world for a better place. Please let me do this. I, I swear to you, I did it. I prayed, I, I prayed out loud in my room. And at the time I had, this is a transition from, again, I had, I had dropped out of college. I was working at my old pizza place in Oneana on the weekends, but I was living in a side room in my parents' house. I think it was like 23 or four, 24, maybe right, right around there. So it was a big, it was right. It was 23 into my 24th birthday. Cause I remember I ended up scoring my, that desk job right around my 24th birthday at, at the thing. And I'm actually able to move out that summer and this all comes together. So I, I, I literally say all these things. I go, please let me do this. You know, I want to do this. So I get this job and now, <laughs> and now I, I, I can move out, but no one will live with me because they've already gotten their houses for next semester. So I was in a fraternity and these three guys, they let me sleep in their closet. All right. For a semester before I could get a, get a place. I, I owe them everything. So like, as I'm sleeping in a closet and about to get this new place, I'm working in a pizza place at night. I've got my desk job during that. I'm working like 60 hours a week, bro, but I'm loving it, right? I'm doing it. I don't care. I'm making enough money. I don't have to go home. It's great. Blah, blah, blah. So I get my new place and my delivery guy who actually just came and visited me a couple months ago, he's out in Colorado, pretty successful dude at this point, but he's my delivery guy and I'm handing him a disc about, and we're talking about 9-11, Bohemian Grove, all that stuff. <laughs> and so he sees that I have loose change written on it. And he goes, I know those guys. <laughs> I go, what? He goes, yeah, man. He goes, they went to high school with me and they're coming back to Oneana. And actually Corey will be here tomorrow. Do you want him to come in and talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> so shout out to my boy, Phil, you know, because if he does see this, you know, I, we, we battle on Facebook a lot, but I love you, brother. And he brings Corey Rowe in the next night. Corey talks to me for about an hour. He's kind of blown away with all the information I have. You know, I guess, he, you know, at this point, they've probably been contacted by enough people and seen enough things and blah, blah, blah. So he goes, well, we got this script for the second edition. We are doing another one. And he goes, would you be interested in checking it out and kind of reading through it and uh, seeing what you think and, you know, seeing what you, you, you could add to it or think needs to come out or whatever. I go, yeah. So he goes home, he prints it out and he hands me a copy of it. And on the way to work the next morning, 
because I was taking the bus because it was I was living in Oneana and I was working in Cooperstown. They're very close to each other. It's about a 45 minute ride and I'm reading through it and I'm so pumped, man. I'm so pumped. <laughs> so I come back with my revisions. I talked to Corey a little bit more. He's like, well, Dylan will be in town this week. And I now I have my laptop and I'm showing Corey some of the videos I have. He's like, I haven't seen that yet. I hadn't seen that. Okay. Dylan comes over and like me and Dylan really connected on the 9-11 thing. You know, we, we had other interests too, like, you know, comedy, I guess, you know, we were definitely all three very different personalities, but as far as, you know, me and Dylan on 9-11, we, we felt there, we had been fucked hard. You know, we very much related to that. And both of them realized that I was quick-witted and a good mouthpiece and wasn't afraid to get in people's faces and wasn't afraid to, you know, really lay down the truth, no matter what kind of lie and not be stumbling. You know what I mean? It took a little while to get more comfortable. And I got obviously even more comfortable after working for Jones, but they knew I was a pit bull out of the gates. And that's how I got into it, man. And that's, you know, to bring it full circle, I, I do believe in the quote unquote, not, not the secret in that sense, because it wasn't like that opportunity just fell into my lap. I had prepped myself in every way possible subliminally, whether I knew it or not. Okay. Cause it was my passion. I was upset. I do want to change the world. It's the actualization of your destiny, man. It really is. And I think everybody, when they find their purpose, it will line up for them. And the problem with the secret on its face, on its superficial value is because people will go into it thinking like, you know, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars and all this bullshit that has nothing to do with true human purpose and true human values and what you're doing, man. I mean, I'm over here just feeling the vibes pour through the screen because it's really, it's powerful. You know, you've dedicated your life to putting the truth out there. Obviously, you're not afraid to to shove it in people's faces. And sometimes that's necessary, you know, and something that I've been, um, thinking about lately is this like idea that 20% of us are awake, right? Mm -hmm. 30% of us are kind of just lost now. They're, they're co-opted. They've been bought and sold, sold their soul to the devil, so to speak. But there's that 50% still left out there, right? Who are, who are on the fence, who could come down to this side and join us. So what advice do you have out there? Cause people listening, you know, their family thinks they're crazy probably for listening to this. I'm sure you've dealt with that in your life where people, you know, are like, dude, why are you, you know, so focused on these conspiracies? You no, know, we never got to the Q thing. And I think that that there's a good correlation there. Cause now that that's been reinforced with those that just want to be like, Durr, you believe in Q. <laughs> you believe in Q with yeah. everything, right? Like, yeah. Oh, you, you want to question the MRNA vaccine that was developed 20 plus years ago by the defense advanced research project agency. Q <laughs> Like let's talk about that because there were people, especially with the Epstein thing, and starting to see that that had intelligence ties waking up to a lot, right? To a lot. And I think Trump won in a ultimate landslide. I mean, they, he, I, I, I think there's no chance he didn't dominate not only the popular vote, but I would be surprised if more than two states gave it to Joe Biden. If we were actually, I'm dead serious. Yeah. You know, maybe one day we'll have the evidence. But, you know, again, I, I believe my eyes and ears. And when I see a guy selling out stadiums, when I see lockdowns that are unjust, when I see ballots that are unjust, when I see no transparency, when I've been speaking out against that. And that's the other thing, you know, I'm no Trumper. 
I've been talking about transparency in elections for 15 years. I've been talking about Diebold. Okay, I, I've interviewed Bev Harris. I know black box voting. They, it's, it, it's that on steroids now, folks. They've made it even worse and more unaccountable. I've, I've talked about fractional voting for over a decade. But again, durr, durr. <laughs> so this is this is how I feel it happened. You know, throughout my dealings with trying to expose the truth and many people calling them conspiracy theories, I've seen waves of the types of disinformation to try to discredit or disprove things. So, you know, one of the big things in 9-11 truth that I think is totally nonsense and one of the biggest discreditors is the no planes people. And they really tried to take it over, right? And they, they tried to infiltrate you or now you were a 9-11 denier. You know, I was in the quote unquote 9-11 truth game before the truther thing even existed because now we call the 9-11 truth movement. How do you discredit them? We're going to make the term truther into conspiracy theorists. So you look, I, I talked about that as the transition happened, right? And then the original, you know, Tea Party was 9-11 truth and Ron Paul, libertarians. And then that got co-opted, right? Everything gets a little bit of a flavor. So then they want to get you on a more global scale. Well, you're a flat earther. And, you know, I, I'm at least sympathetic to those people because just so people understand, I don't believe in flat earth, but mainline science now tells you you either live in a multiverse of infinite possibilities where you're a crab person raping multiple children as the king of new crab land, right? Because every possibility has to happen. I mean, that's how far it is for me, guys. Like, that's how they're selling it. It, it. And you think I'm kidding. I've done videos on it. Or you're in a simulation. You're in a, bit, a, a big video game, right? So you don't matter. You don't have free choice. If they're going to push that, if you were in a simulation, you do understand you probably necessarily would not be on a globe because you wouldn't exist. <laughs> because you, if you've played sandbox games, it's not like unless they're actually built in a circular pattern, you know, programming, that's not how it's done. So just, you know, I get that. But but again, they give you these levels of bullshit, okay, to, to try to discredit things. And I saw Nasara and White Hats and Anons well before the Q phenomenon, and they put that out there. I remember people like Benjamin Fulford, who had worked for Forbes, and then all of a sudden was talking about the Japanese Yakuza versus the Illuminati and trying to sell the saviors on message boards thing then. So I'd seen the saviors on message boards thing. And I'd seen it at the same time that I was exposing Epstein in like 2009 and 10, when people were just finding out about that island, right? Also, you know, years later, you would get the Sandusky thing and Penn State. And I still have to do a video on how Graham Spanier, who facilitated that for decades, is now, I think, going to do three months in prison. I, you know, I'm glad that that reminds me I've got to do that story because I have that article up there. But to keep going... High-level pedophilia does exist. I talked about it well before any kind of Q drops. I talked about Epstein. I talked about the finders. I talked about the Franklin scandal. You know, we now had evidence well before the Q phenomenon that Dennis Hassert, at the time the longest-serving speaker of the House for the Republicans, was a serial child molester as labeled by a judge. Mark Foley was inside. He protected him. All these things are pre-Q. Wiener was a real thing, pre-Q. Okay, there were questions. I'll go to the just the Lozado email in those WikiLeaks, right? All these things were valid where you're talking about three children that are named by age, 
I think all of them under like 11. <laughs> it's like six, eight, and 11 being talked about as entertainment on a farm in a heated pool. And they're going to be in that heated pool for sure. They're going to be Ubered there. And that shit is real. Okay. That is not QAnon. Okay. None of that. None of it. None of it. And when I started seeing secret super code words and, and lists of bullshit on the internet, I knew it was bullshit right away, right away. And I warrant, you know, I remember Luke sent me this big PDF getting back to the, we are change stuff. He said, I want you to look through this and see what you see. And I go, I don't see nothing but bullshit, bro. <laughs> I see like horoscope bullshit and this is dangerous. And the truth of the matter is, was Trump better than zombie Joe? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, there were some small wins there. Like, was he corrupt? Yes. I was one of the, again, because I'm not a MAGA guy, I was one of the very few people, anybody can go to my channel, calling out Trump's relationship, or we are changes, I was calling him out there, Trump's relationship with Epstein long before that video came out. All those deniers out there, I go, listen, Filthy Rich is there. And I go, these articles show that Epstein flew on Trump's plane. He might not be in the logs, but that doesn't mean that those are complete logs or they didn't know each other. You know, they did business together, no doubt about it. So, you know, you, know, you can't have a guy that said, I love the WikiLeaks, can't get enough of the WikiLeaks. Have you seen the WikiLeaks, right? And WikiLeaks are the ones that dump those emails, are the ones that give us this idea of what's really going on in Gitmo and Abu Ghraib many years ago, right? Horrific things. You know, and, and that was another poison of this Q movement is they legitimized Guantanamo Bay, right? Oh, they got him at Gitmo. We're going to have their secret arrests and indictments. And they executed uh, McCain and Gitmo. Gitmo is not a good thing. None of these things were positive. Okay. And they were selling you a fairy tale that people like Bill Barr, who's not a good guy, were working with other, you know, Anons in the deep state to take it down. I didn't see it. If you couldn't get, if you couldn't put out to the public, and this is what he should have done, man. You know, if he had the stones, because they're going to prosecute his ass anyway, because they don't like how far he went. If you haven't seen in New York State, they're going to criminally charge Trump. They're going to try to tie him up in a criminal investigation, and they're going to try to time it so he can't run for president again. But I wouldn't vote for him anyway. I just want to put that out there. I did vote for him twice, but again, I've talked about those situations. I don't want to get too far into them. My point being is this, he should have immediately declassified all of the JFK documents immediately and then said, you know, given a speech to everybody and say, look, let the chips fall where they may. This shows who within our government killed the president and their connections to what we have now in the deep state that I keep talking about. And this is what we're up against. And I don't need John Bolton, James Mattis, Bill Barr, or anybody like them in my administration. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, but if you're not willing to put it on the line now, who is? How do you think we win this thing? And I don't know that it's voting and I don't know that it's going to be billionaires that are on reality TV eating Big Macs and fucking hookers. OK, I, I don't. And I'm not a great person. I've made mistakes, too. I'm not trying to elevate myself to Angel Smith. OK, but but let's have some sense of somebody who's willing to say, look at what's happened around us. Doesn't matter what the color of skin is. Doesn't matter what your gender is. Look at our kids and look how they're growing up and look how they're taking away their humanity and saying you have to stand on a sticker and you have to wear something that hides your very humanity to other human beings. I mean, it's we're wild times, bro. 
and you're going to have to roll your sleeve up for whatever we want. And you know what? We might not even tell you because we've got Trojan Horse Networks. I mean, if you've been watching my stuff on DARPA and this Future Warfare 2025 document from NASA, which is really just a front for the military industrial complex. We're not going to the moon and going to fucking Mars and all this other bullshit that they sell you that you're going to do on rocket ships and blah, blah, blah. That's not what this is, man. NASA is the militarization of space and keeping black projects away from the public eye. They're, they're like an arm of DARPA. Like if They split off at the very same time and created at the very same time. Okay, if people don't, people need to see the history of what's really going on. I I suggest Annie Jacobson. You can get all of her books in full on audio, right? So you don't even have to read them because they're going to take you about 23, 24 hours for her just to read them uh, to you. It's quite some time, but some of them are even longer. She's done books on Area 51. It ain't about space aliens, folks. I promise you that. DARPA, Operation Paperclip. She just did one on the 1st Battalion, which gets into that type of technology, our 1st Battalion, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan. And she's even done one, I'm sure, that you would be interested in on on ESP. So she's got a lot of material out there. I've seen the cliff notes. I've listened and read some parts of her books. I have not even read all of them because I'm sure that I would just lose it. (laughs) But she has great, like she's actually given, she gave a speech about DARPA at Google for over an hour that you can watch. And even the cliff notes on DARPA are very interesting by her. So Annie Jacobson, she's a great tool. I would also suggest you follow her on Twitter. You know, it's out there folks. It's not just Jason Burmis. It's not just beauty school dropouts. She's a very, very accredited journalist. And I give her all the credit in the world for being able to get as much information as she has out of these people and, and draw that neutral line right? Because I can't do that because I see this shit for what it is. And that is not my personality. But I think that there are some people that honestly did go through journalism school and they were raised in a different generation in time. She's a little bit older than me. I think about 10, 15 years. I don't want to date you, Annie. And by date you, I mean like, you know, say that you're too, too old or anything like that. But in a time where there was neutrality and you did toe that line and it wasn't well, I'm going to work for Fox. I'm going to work for MSNBC. I'm going to give you this flavor. I'm going to lean to this side. And that's important. (laughs) That's important. It's important to have those people too, because a lot of people might not open up to Jason Burmas because they don't like my opinion on a certain thing. Right. But they might open it up, open up to her because she doesn't hold an opinion one way or another, at least publicly in her book. Right. Yeah. And you know what? You do a great job of explaining to people that I think you do separate your opinions from your source material. And that's one of the most important things. And that's why I respect you so much, man. I appreciate you being here. As far as the future of this game we're in, I mean, podcasting, Rockfin, there are places where the truth is still getting out. Personally, I really am a you know proponent for podcasting, right? These RSS feeds are not easy to parse through. And on top of that, Adam Curry just made this backup podcast 2.0 index. So there are ways that podcasting is being, you know, permanently cemented as a platform for free speech. You know, people love the video content though. 
and Rockfin's a place where you can get that, you know, Odyssey at Library Rumble, all these other places. But tell us a little bit about that and, and let's end this on a more positive note, solution based. I know you may recently made a move out to a more rural area too, right? So not more rural. Everybody thinks that. Like it's funny because well, like, dude, again, I was telling you in high school, I graduated 54 kids, right? Even in Oneana. It's 10,000, but I think roughly about 8,000 of those are students between two colleges, SUNY Oneana, which is my alma mater, which by the way, kids, you know, if you don't think your dreams can come true or you can be recognized, it's hilarious because again, I never even graduated. And if you go to like Ranker or you go to their website, I think I'm like number 13 most notable of all time at the university. And it's like 70 <laughs> years old now. <laughs> All right. I'm like, I'm, I'm squeezed in between like an inner, like another, like a regular broadcaster and like an astronaut. Right. And like, uh -huh. you know, number one is like Gary Sinise and who's the other, there's another actor. The actors always get it at the top, but what, yeah, I mean, you do what you want, you know, you do your own thing, but it's small. So I, I went across the country, man. I am solution-based, right? I realized new, I was going to these protests at New York and I just saw that my neighbors and my family members and my friends weren't going to stand up. They weren't. I had to make another plan. That's it. Like I, I was going to these things in Albany. I was trying to see who was going to, no one was standing up. Everybody was rolling over. It was scary, you know? And as soon as I saw on my main drag of main street, that metal signs went up that said, please wear your mask. That was it for me, man. That was a wrap. I think that was back in April of last year. And so I had devised a plan that I was going to figure it out by buying a car, and it was really tough because I also had to register that car. I couldn't do it until I bought it in May. I couldn't do it until June because the DMVs were closed. Like they really were locking you down. You couldn't just get up and go and, and all that stuff. So I bought a car. I got it fixed up, made sure it was not only roadworthy, but across the country roadworthy. And I made a plan and I was going to go. I went to New Hampshire first. And actually earlier today, I had Mike Jackman on, one half of the Jackman brothers, Eric and Mike, they're great. And I was meeting them in New Hampshire. They're longtime friends from when they were student scholars for 9-11 Truth with a guy named Justin Martell, also a very talented guy. All three of those guys, very blessed to know, very super talented. Again, in this journey, I've met so many cool and very interesting people. So I go, you know what, I, I'm going to go out there and see these guys anyway on my road trip because they'll make for good content. And it turns out, the day after I basically the day I was leaving to get there or was the day the day after it happened, I was there anyway. I was scheduled to go. They picked up Ghislaine Maxwell in New Hampshire. So I get there and I'm like, well, let's suit up, boys. We're going. <laughs> so it was actually the day of because I got there that night and obviously we weren't going to go at nighttime. But the next day I go, we're going, man. We're, we're going to go to her hideout. So we did. So, you know, I got to do some content out there and we went out to the Ghislaine Maxwell hideout and the London Guardian was there. And like, there were all these other people there. I talked to her neighbors. It was a pretty wild experience. And from there, I was going to go to Ohio because they were still kind of, you know, closer to the East Coast, but didn't have the stringent lockdowns that I heard. And plus a couple of people from Action for Assange were there, both Andrew and Taylor Hudak, who was still with them. So I had the opportunity to, you know, create some content you know, check out that area there. From there, I, I saw that Missouri was pretty open, right? So I wanted to go there. And 
all, all this was by the seat of my pants, by the way. I want to let everybody know that basically I would stay somewhere and I would pick out a hotel for a night. And then if it was good and I liked it and I liked the area, I'd stay for a little bit longer. You know what I mean? And I stayed outside of St. Louis in a place called Chesterfield. And I really liked that area. You know, not a lot of fear, not people not wearing masks in a lot of places. You know, that that's what I wanted. Hotel was super cheap. A lot of these places I would go and the pool would be closed and, you know, they, they didn't want to do this or that it was very, very close. This one was happy to be open. So like it had a hot tub and it was right around the corner from this nice little bar and restaurant. So I made some friends there and I was like, man, this is a nice area. There's some country around. It's close to St. Louis. You know, this could maybe work. And I was sitting there on my phone. The next spot was supposed to be Wisconsin because they were pretty open and they were fighting against lockdowns. And I'm watching the LFA, big MMA fan. That's what was on. And Pat Militich is calling the fights. Now, I'd done uh, the conspiracy farm once with Pat. And I saw him calling the fights. And I was like, damn, man, uh, he's saying that he's going to fight in. He said he was going to fight in Iowa. And there was going to be a crowd at the Mississippi Valley Fair, Fairgrounds. And I'm like, what? And he's fighting Michael Nunn in a kickboxing match. Well, I'm like, dude, this is great because I was ready to leave Missouri. And I was <coughs> going um, across the country to South Dakota. And I was going to do maybe Wisconsin on the way back. But instead of doing Wisconsin on the way back, I did South Dakota in Sioux Falls for a little under a week. And then I came to Iowa. And it's this great place called Quad Cities. So on one uh, half is actually Illinois of the, of the Mississippi River. And the other half is Iowa. And basically two out of the uh, four cities are on this side and there's the smallest one and the nicest one is happened where I live at Bettendorf, but Davenport's real cool. Then you got, I mean, the other two rock, rock Island and Moline have been eviscerated by this. It shows you the very big differences, right? Mm. Like, I mean, literally five minutes. I did a, I did a ride along the other day into, into like what was a deserted area, it, five minutes and it's night and day here. Right. And I live with uh, my sister and her kids and, you know, I wanted them to be able to go to school and hopefully not wear masks. And the kids still weren't on, you know, in masks here and, you know, they ended up coming out. So this was the obvious choice. And I've met a lot of really like-minded people here. It's Iowa that led the way of getting the masks off the kids. It's starting to trickle down. Just a couple of weeks ago, I again met a couple of incredible fighters that, you know, went to Ankeny, which is right outside of Des Moines and, the authoritarians there weren't going to listen, you know, but they fought hard and they got their message out to the people. And uh, the next thing you know, three days later, they're sitting down with Kim Reynolds, our governor, and they're signing a statewide ban. And all of a sudden, my nieces don't have to wear masks. So what I'm telling people is this, you know, all hope is not lost. You want to wake a lot of these people up, but I don't even call it red pill because it ain't, it ain't red, it ain't blue, it ain't any of that stuff. I've done videos on how I don't even like the thing about Red Bull. I'm not a truther. I'm none of those things. I'm a guy that's trying to be honest with you, that's looking at the data, that is always going to search for the truth. And I'm always going to let you give your perspective, and hopefully you're going to let me give mine. And I'm going to let you present your evidence, and hopefully you're going to let me present mine, and we can weigh them against one another. And I'm really just a pro-humanity guy and we can agree to disagree, right? We could still go play horse in the backyard or I just took a walk through the park, play some ball. All that stuff's important. Being a human being is very important and they want to move us away from that. And that's the real deal. They, they want to encourage 12 second videos on social media. 
They want to encourage endorphin rushes through thumbs up and likes and emojis and all that other horse shit. What they don't want to encourage is long conversations at a barbecue with a hundred of your friends, family, and neighbors for the next, you know, five to six hours where you guys can all relate to one another, dance and be humans again for some reason. So that should tell you all you need to know. And if you want to get deeper, all my stuff is free, right? Talking about alternative platforms, Rockfin, she's been a very, very good to me. (laughs) I've been demonetized over a year on YouTube, almost a year and a half. It took them 13 months for them to review my channel. Uh, It's funny. They got at me on Twitter today. I'm I'm almost, the YouTube creator's official channel said something to me today, but it's like this generic thing. And I just want to flame them. Uh, Currently, I got another one-week ban. I got rid of my strikes, but they gave me another strike for this other nonsense thing. Go go to my channel and check it out. Uh, but I want to reach the people that are watching cat videos too. I haven't given up on human beings. Okay. That's why I want to be there. But Rockfin basically has allowed me to say what I want, when I want, uh, how I want. And it's an independent platform. If you do pay $9.99, you get not only my premium content, which is few and far between and usually archives only now. You know what I mean? I want to give away as much as possible, but you get everybody's premium content. So for 10 bucks a month, you get everything on the site and it's raw and uncensored. And guys like Jay Dyer are there and guys like Graham Elwood are there and Nico House and the Convo Couch. And then you got your MMA guys, Askren, Fitch. Obviously the Conspiracy Farm is there over at that podcast network as well. Sam Tripoli all up in that piece. They're bringing so much comedy over there too. It's just awesome. And they have a new app. And they, they've allowed me to be part of the process of talking about this and bringing new technology in. Like, for instance, you know, I, I, it's refreshing that not only am I not censored, but I'm listened to, right? So, you know, one of the very early conversations I had about the platform with these guys is I was taking them through the, my, the back end of my YouTube when I was still monetized. And I was showing them how tips were important, right? And to use super chats at, at YouTube. And they got that integrated at a very, very, very rapid pace. Cause I know it's not easy to do. And that's been another way people can support me, right? Like for instance, after you put this podcast up, I'll probably, this might be a premium. Maybe, you know, this might be a premium. Maybe I'll cut together like a clip or two and put it on YouTube when I'm back on there to bring people over to Rockfin. And it, it's just kind of like that extra stuff. And people like that, you know, Whitney Webb and I just crushed it over on Rockfin. She's another one that's over there with unlimited hangout. So instead of marginalizing us on platforms, I've actually been able to take of my 61,000 subscribers over there, over 17,000 followers over on Rockfin. And we do it live and free. And, you know, you can make a free account and there's so much free content on there. Why wouldn't you? So uh, that's the one I'm encouraging. I think Odyssey is great. I thank them all the time because they back up my YouTube channel, which could be taken away at any time. And they've just um, started integrating live streaming as well. But that was another huge sell on uh, Rockfin. You talk about, you know, I'm no Luddite. Luddite. Technology can be used to empower or enslave humanity. And I'm sitting here in a very small room with a green screen with four very cheap monitors, okay? I I just literally, I go to Salvation Army all the time. In fact, I may go after this, although they may be closed because it's Memorial Day. I I got three monitors the other day for $35, like I I'm ghetto fabulous when I need to be. And every once in a while I, I do treat myself to like a mixer or something. I just bought a new mixer, but for under $1,500, anybody can do what I do and you can do it comfortably. And I don't need restream IO. 
I can stream to three, four different uh, spots in high definition in almost real time, right? Without all that, that's empowering, you know? And Rockfin is that place that lets me do it. You know, it lets me get out high definition content now free to people. They'll put out emails for me, notifications. I, I love them. And I, I really think, I think, uh, listen, and I can't say that I'm not biased too, but I'm a huge MMA fan. You know, one of the perks about moving out here. And again, you talk about the law of attraction again, you know, and kind of building your own uh, destiny. I have often spoken about being the poor man's Joe Rogan and calling MMA fights and I'm calling pro MMA fights, you know? So I get here and I got here in October and they had a show and obviously Pat knows who I am. And then Jeffrey Wilson also, he was, he's uh, one of the color commentators there. So I went back-to-back nights. They did back-to-back caged aggression shows. Talk about a positive end, right? And uh, Jeffrey introduces me to like the crew guy, the guy who's now become uh, one of my good friends, uh, Justin. And he goes, dude, I, you know, I know who you are and talks to me and blah, blah, blah. And so I go to an after party with everybody and we talk for a little while and I meet some people out here and literally two weeks later, hey man, do you want to call the next fight? Do you want to do some interview work for us? I'm like, yes, I do. So now, you know, we're, I think, three cards later. Like, we did a double show and we did another triple show after those ones. And, you know, I'm calling fights with not only Pat Militich, Hall of Famer, but Jens Pulver, first 155 champ in the UFC and probably a future Hall of Famer. You know, Tim Sylvia has been in the house you know, I'm, I'm backstage with all these other guys and I'm talking to, to you know, MMA fighters, re, you know, refs, the whole nine now. And I am the poor man's Joe Rogan. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's going to be troublesome for me because Conor McGregor is a uh, multiple violent rapist. And I've been very vocal about that. So I will never get to that UFC level, but that's fine. Fuck Disney. Fuck ESPN. I don't fucking care about you. I'll all be right. that grimy underground motherfucker till I die because I'm not selling out. Like, that's the thing. My, you know, my soul isn't worth it. Okay, guys, I'm going to call like I see it. And I don't like that you push a fucking McRapist. How about that? That's positive. I'm with you. I I can tell you I've been in martial arts since I was 14. And as soon as Fox bought UFC, I stopped watching it. I love as much as I love martial arts, as soon as they made that shift and it was all on ESPN, you know, and now I could probably go and uh, watch some underground MMA fights. I, I, I've <laughs> well, been procrastinating you, that. TV, bro. you get it on the pay-per-view. Yeah, yeah I already yeah. have Rockfin, so I should be doing that. Well, not only that, they're not, see, Cage Digression's not on. I'm trying to get Cage Digression on Rockfin, but they have a YouTube channel after, we okay. basically we do pay-per-view live, which is kind of cool. And, uh, you know, at any of these shows, you can check it out. It's cagedigression.tv when we do that. But after, I think, a week, he puts them online for free. So if you go on YouTube, you look for the Cage Digression fights, you'll hear me, you'll see me in the background. Not last show, but the, I think, like, the three-person show, a couple of the nights I'm in the ring with the with the ring girls, hyping it up, and they're throwing out gloves and all this stuff. Having a good time, man. You know, having a good time. And the other thing that I really love about it is that people are getting together. You know, you know, there's, you know, at this time, especially, there were still, the UFC wasn't, you know, the UFC just started filling up stadiums again, right? They, although at small capacities, we've been doing it. We've been having shows with people. There are people getting up and having a good time and living their lives indoors, you know, not just when they're sitting down. 
So, you know, I, I've talked about it. I mean, I've shown the after parties every once in a while on my Twitter to let people know to stop being in fear. This is ridiculous. I, I, I've been to so many super spreader events, folks, at this point. You know, I was at the Capitol in January. I was at D.C. in December. You know, I went back and forth. I went to both of them. Uh, again, I was over the summer at the Mississippi Valley Fairgrounds. I moved to Iowa. I went to South Dakota so I could be among people. You want to be among people. Because I'm telling you right now, if you start fearing people because of invisible things, <laughs> we're doomed. You don't want to do that. You want to be at the park with your kids, having a good time with your friends and family, living it up, not giving a what. Amen. Yes. Thank you so much, man. This, is, this has been a great conversation. Folks, please go to rockfin.com and check out Jason Burmis and all the awesome stuff he's doing. But with that, Thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and have a good one. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I Don't listen crazy to him. For feeling so lonely. Follow us on patreon.com slash mftic. That's patreon.com slash mftic.